I want to invite you to have a seat this morning. As you do, I want to introduce myself. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy to be bringing the word to you this morning. And as I prepare to do so, I want to go ahead and take a moment to dismiss Hubtown Kids ages 3 to 5. So if you're in that age range uh, or, uh, or, or can be passed off in that age, age range, we're, we're, we're going to ID a few of you. Um, you're going to head this way uh, to my right, probably your left, over to where Mr. Brett is. And uh, you're going to be learning this morning, uh, parents, kiddos, you're gonna, they're going to be learning about the, the fact that God is faithful, that God is faithful. One of the, the reasons why we so willingly can be, uh, be sending the Wilkerson's friend, pastor, brother, life group leader, D group leader. Uh, the reason why we can send these folks is because we entrust them to God who is faithful. So we willingly send them. Kiddos are going to learn a little bit about that this morning. And so uh, as I typically encourage you to do, I want you to ask the kids about uh, what it means that God is faithful and see what kind of answer you get. Uh, I'd be curious to hear. Maybe your heart would be encouraged. And if not, maybe you'll, you'll have uh, just a little bit of joy here in their explanation. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll bring a, a smile to your face. Anyway, we're going to be jumping back into our exposition of the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to be looking specifically at verses 17 to 31. So last week we just uh, grabbed uh, just a few short verses and we spent uh, most of our, all of our time there in those short verses. We've got a larger uh, text this, this morning and so it'll be a larger sermon. Uh, it shouldn't be more than two or three hours. Uh, so make sure that you get comfortable. No, I'll, we won't take that much time. As you turn there, I want to read it for you. So follow along. It should be on the screen if you don't have a copy. This is what the Word of God says. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, We have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. Let's together ask him to bless it. Father, quickly, we again just demonstrate our dependence on you, our need and our trust in you to work through the reading and preaching of your scripture to feed your church. God, we pray that you'd be glorified, that Jesus would be lifted up, and that your church will be helped. And we ask that these things be done through your word and in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I typically do, I want to give you the main idea of the text. Some of you, if you pay attention, I imagine there are a few of you who do, uh, you may think that uh, you hear a, a, a broken record. Because the main idea for this morning is the same main idea that it was last week. And here it is again. Those who would enter the kingdom of God bring nothing and gain everything. That those who would enter the kingdom of God bring nothing and gain everything. And so it's a case of deja vu. Last week we had a case where Jesus is observing the way that people are treating children and he sees their implied values and he mitigates that with the values that they should be having towards children. Furthermore, he explains to them a little bit about how, to, how people actually enter or receive the kingdom of God. And so we have another case this morning of a rich man coming to Jesus and asking how he can enter the kingdom. And so we, this morning we have a case, a different case, a new case, verses 17 to 22. We'll take some time and work through that. And then Jesus provides a commentary for us, or rather Mark does, in verses 23 to 31. And so first, let's look this morning at the case as we break apart verses 17 to 22. It says, and as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus setting out on his journey, remember he's heading towards Jerusalem, it says a man ran up and knelt before Jesus. Ran up and knelt before Jesus. Well, this person, uh, Mark lets us know, that is that he uh, was a rich man. Here we have a rich man coming to Jesus. Matthew tells us the story in another uh, way, and he tells us that this man is a young man. And furthermore, in Luke, we, we learn that this guy is some sort of a ruler. And so we piece all these things together, and we see it's a young or a, a rich, young ruler. Here he is. He's coming to Jesus. Not only is he rich, but he's powerful, and on top of all of that, he's young. You often hear the lament, somebody being old enough to to know better, right? But wishing they'd known what they know now when they were young, right? If I could just tell my younger self these things, he could I could end up becoming rich, right? If I had just invested in this thing and done that thing. Well, this guy, he's not a young, an old man wishing that he was young so that he could spend the money that he's now gotten. He's saying, hey, I'm rich. 
I'm young and I have power. He has the, the trifecta, if you will, the dream. Oh, even though he's not an American here. I've read, I don't know if it's true, but I've read that respectable Jews of this day, they wouldn't typically run. Not mature men. But if this is true, when you, when you couple, couple running with kneeling at the, foot of the, the feet of this master, of this rabbi, this teacher, it, it kind of helps us to see that this guy's in dire straits. He's seen that even though he's come to the, to the, the pinnacle of society, experiencing all the, the good things that this world has to offer, he's probably recognizing that it's not enough. And so he comes to Jesus still looking for something, wanting something more, running and kneeling, kind of set this scene up to be, well, quite a scene, something that you'd want to watch. So he comes up to Jesus, he kneels before him, and he asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When he refers to Jesus here, he says, good teacher. He's not, in our world, in our mind, our, our vernacular, we're thinking good just means, oh, he's, he's average. Jesus is an average teacher, and that's not what this guy is saying. He's demonstrating his, his incredibly high regard for Jesus. You're a kind teacher. You are a good teacher. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, inheriting eternal life is really synonymous with salvation. It's synonymous with being saved. It's the same thing as having treasure in heaven. It's the same as entering the kingdom of God or, or receiving the kingdom of heaven. These are all interchangeable. In fact, this text does as much. That's the burning question of his mind. How can I be saved? How can I inherit eternal life? How can I have more than I have right now? Because this is not really meeting my needs. It's an important question for this man. He's in the right place, recognizing likely that his charisma, his position, and humble, uh, coupling all that with his humble greeting, his lowly posture, He's hoping that that will help to secure his entrance into the kingdom. Look at verse 18. It says, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. You know all these. The man responds to Jesus. He says, Teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. Some folks have used this verse, verse 18 in particular, to dismantle the Trinity and even to point to uh, the, the, that Jesus is not deity, that he's not God. To that I would respond, foolishness. Why? Jesus isn't saying anything about his own goodness. He's not saying, why are you calling me good? I'm not good. That's not what he says here. He's telling the man to pause and think about that word, good. He wants, Jesus wants him to think about his own goodness. And so he makes a point. He doesn't want this man to use that word lightly, as we see he will in just a moment. 
Besides all that, Jesus is laying the groundwork for showing this man's own inability, or any person for that matter, to keep the commandments of God in order to inherit eternal life, which is what this guy is going after. Why do you call me good? You know, no one's good but God. And that no one includes you, rich man, young man. Jesus wants the man to see that he is not as good as he thinks he is. What about you? Pause the story. It's not commentary time. We're, we're just making some observations, walking through this narrative. But think of your own life. How would you answer this question? No one is good but God. Are you good? Do you think of yourself as good? Compared to what? Compared to the Word of God? Compared to the Ten Commandments? On what basis do you judge your own goodness? Jesus wants this man to see the intent of the law, which is to bring you to repentance to bring you to desperation. It's not a staircase for us to get to God. Hey, I've kept all these from my youth. That's not what Jesus is referencing the Ten Commandments for. No, he, he thinks maybe, hey, I'm going to show this guy. I'm going to ask him about the, the Ten Commandments. I'm going to ask him about number five. I'm going to ask him about number six and seven and eight and nine. I'm, that'll kind of bring him low here. And the guy's like, doesn't even phase him. Just right over his head, like, yep. Kept them all from my youth, doing good. What else? What else do you want me to do? What, what, what other steps? Check. Next. Verse 21, it says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him. And I love that. Jesus looks at him. He loves him and says to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. He looks him in the eyes, looking at him. He loves him. Some say that maybe he even puts his arms around him. I, I don't really know, but I know he demonstrates in that moment his genuine love for this man based on this man's genuine need and he says to him it's not just a gesture he's not just like well it's the thought that counts jesus looks at him loves him and says to him you lack one thing it's a hard thing for me to fathom this is a hard thing for me to do to see somebody in need to look them in the eye Anybody else have struggles with that? When you see somebody that's got a need, maybe it's really obvious. Maybe it's painful, you know, culturally in our society. And you just, you just want to look the other way. I don't want to look this person in the eye. Jesus presses through that. I wish we would. I wish I would. Looks him in the eye, loves him, has genuine love based on this man's genuine need. I wish I would do that more. And then he speaks to this dude's real need. 
He says the thing that nobody wants to do. You know, like on Saturday mornings when you're talking to somebody and they say something that's like obvious, like, wow, that needs to be corrected. That is a pain point in their life and they need some truth applied to that, right? And you're like, I, I just don't want to ruin my Saturday. I don't want to ruin my day. I don't want this to get awkward. I really like this person. I don't want, the, I don't want them to like, I want them to really, really like me. Jesus presses through all that. All the awkwardness, all the pain. And with Solomonic wisdom, he just segues right to the real issue that this guy has. I wish, I'd love to see that in my life more. And I'd love to see that in our church more. One thing that this guy lacked, it wasn't an additional personal virtue, but it was a single-hearted devotion to God as commanded by the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me. Jesus spotted it. This guy had another god before Yahweh. Depending on how you look at it, it was his own god. He was a god himself of sorts. His own wants, his own lusts and desires were placed above God. Maybe from another angle, he had elevated wealth displaced God from his rightful throne in his life. Either way, he lacked that one thing, and Jesus gets right to it with this instruction. Go, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come back and follow me. I'll be right here waiting on you. Well, what happens in verse 22? It says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? It says, for he had great possessions. This guy leaves dejected, crestfallen. His hopes were dashed, pain visible on his face, in his eyes, as Jesus looks into them, saying this hard truth in love. He walks away. I think what's happening is this guy's sorrow is stemming from the fact that he realizes that he has chosen the riches of this world over heavenly riches. But even more than that, I would argue that he is sad because he knows that he is unable to choose otherwise. That he is unable to choose otherwise. Can you relate to that this morning? Maybe you've heard the truths of the gospel since you were knee-high to a grasshopper. Maybe, maybe as, as, as recent as this week, you've heard the gospel. You've heard the invitation. You've felt the call of God's Spirit to yours saying, repent, give these things up. Maybe even there's a small part of you that says, that's what I want to do. But you come to the place where you say, I'm disheartened. I'm sorrowful because I'm unable to choose otherwise. Maybe your hands are so tightly grasping sin in your life and you're unable to part ways. And it's interesting, this man had great possessions. I love that word, possessions. I don't mean to, to say that this is in the text, but I think this is really interesting. 
possessions. Possessing something, holding something. Made me think of this question. Regarding your possessions, do you possess them or do they possess you? Regarding the things that you have in this life, ask yourself this question. Do you possess them or do they possess you? Do you possess your bank account or does your bank account possess you? Are you so enthralled and so focused on that that you can do nothing else, that you've got to see it, you've got to be connected. Maybe it's your retirement accounts. You've got to see how they're doing that day. Anytime, just this nervous tick, you have to pull your phone out, you have to check your accounts online. Maybe it's your Facebook account or social media, whatever it is. You think, well, I I have a social media account or maybe it's better said, a social media account has you. You say, well, I have some real estate. Does your real estate have you? I have a profession. Does your profession possess you? I have some collections. I have some vehicles. I have some relationships that I possess. Or do they possess you? I think it's a question worth asking this morning. This guy was in the grips of possessions. He was in the grips of great wealth. He leaves the presence of Jesus sorrowful because he recognizes he has no hope. It's impossible for him to do anything else. Not in his own power, he's hopeless. And by the way, I, I want to say this. This is a descriptive passage. It's not prescriptive, okay? Okay. And so there's a lot of problems that can arise from this text, and I'm not going to stamp out all of them this morning, but let me just say this. Just because you watched a a movie or a TV show about, like, doctors in the emergency room, and maybe uh, you stayed in a Holiday Inn last night, that doesn't mean that you are qualified uh, to be a doctor. You know, I've seen uh, four children birthed into this world through cesarean, right? Knives cutting, you know, open, removing, and lifting up babies like Simba on Pride Rock. But listen, just because I've seen it doesn't mean I'm qualified to do it. Right? And so Jesus here is, we're watching Jesus really with the, the, the care of a surgeon and the love of a, and tenderness of a shepherd look at this guy's heart and say, this is your problem. Go and do this one thing and you're going to be helped. Just because Jesus does that doesn't mean we need to say to everybody, hey, what's your problem? Okay, forget all that. What you need to do is sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come and follow Jesus. That's not exactly what each and every one of us need to do. So this is descriptive. We're watching the greatest heart surgeon of all time do work. And instead of trying to imitate, imitate that in some sense, why don't we just stand in awe of Jesus working in this guy's life? At any rate, maybe you say this morning, I I just can't relate to this. I, I can't relate to being confronted in my life with me having to let go of something, finances or relationships or something like that. If you say you've you've never been confronted with that, then I would argue that today's the day of reckoning. 
So often we are prone to skipping the first four commandments and only keeping the following six in some superficial way. We skip over, don't have any gods before God. And don't make any graven images. We skip over those things. Over, we skip over honoring the name and remembering the Sabbath. And we say, I'm going to honor my parents in a superficial way. I'm not going to steal from my neighbor in a superficial way. Just on the, on the top level, surface, surface level, I'm going to follow the law. Jesus is confronting that in the life of this would-be disciple, this would-be Christian. Just by observation, I think he's confronting that in some of our lives this morning as well. At any rate, this case study for today, it ends with this man turning away, downcast and sullen. He turns away, leaves the presence of Jesus. He's downcast and he's sullen. And so that's the case. We work through it quickly. Let's jump into the commentary, if you will. Verses 23 and following. Jesus looks around to see what kind of impressions this conversation has had. You know, the, the conversation between Jesus and the rich man. What, what kind of impressions? What kind of, where is this left the disciples as they look on? Maybe even the crowd. It's interesting. I made this comment last week. I bet the disciples probably preferred this man's company, this rich, young ruler's company, over the company of the disciples, or children from the prior week. What are they thinking now, though? Jesus says explicitly that these children, that's how you enter the kingdom of God. That's how you receive eternal life, and yet he's seen the rich young ruler leave without that, dejected. What are they thinking now? Well, this is a tender teaching point for Jesus and his disciples. And so lean in. Let's see what kind of commentary Jesus provides. Look at verse 23. Jesus looks around and says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult. Here we have a very sober warning that all of us as 21st century Americans would do well to listen to. He says it's difficult. It's inc- I'm going to tell you more about that in just a minute, but it is incredibly difficult for a rich man, for a wealthy man or woman to enter into the kingdom of God. And just like that, the dynamics of the kingdom are changed drastically. They've turned upside down. Does that make any sense to anybody here before reading Jesus' account? That a rich man would find, a, find it incredibly difficult to enter into the kingdom of God. Why is that? Wouldn't we want to lower the bar in some sense, right? I mean, that way we could build bigger churches and take up greater offerings and have more influence in culture and society. Wouldn't that be great? In some sense, that does make sense. And yet Jesus says it's incredibly difficult for that to happen. He flips everything up on its end. Instead of looking to poverty as a curse, maybe after reading this, we would begin to look at poverty as a blessing and now wealth as the curse. I think that asks a good question. So often we wonder why we don't have the, the financial blessings 
many of us would ask this. Why don't, why don't we have the financial blessings that we think that we need? Wouldn't it be nice if God would just bless us with all of these physical, financial blessings along with the spiritual ones that he's already given to us? Let me ask you this. What would you do with unlimited wealth? What would you do with unlimited wealth? Would you gratify your own flesh? Would you squander it frivolously? In poverty, you may be tempted to choose wealth over following Jesus. The ESV study Bible, wonderful study Bible. Some of you are carrying it this morning. It says this. Wealth can be a dangerous instrument for reinforcing a person's self-sufficiency and independence from God. Too much wealth in the present age acts as a deterrent from, from preparing for the kingdom. It distracts us. It draws our hearts away from dependence on God. So in some sense, Christians... should be wary of wealth. It numbs our hearts and draws our gaze away from our God. And it's a dangerous instrument for reinforcing a person's self-sufficiency and independence from God. It's difficult to enter the kingdom as a wealthy person. Maybe some of you hearing this for the first time Verse 24 could be said of you. And the disciples were amazed at his words. You've got to be kidding me right now. Jaws on the ground. Seriously. Jesus, you're, you're, you're warning us about being rich. You're saying that it's, 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 it's difficult to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. They're thinking, man, this, is, this guy's way more counterculture than I ever imagined he would be. Truly, they're beginning to see that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Jesus doesn't leave it there with that. Just that one comment on this rich man leaving crestfallen. He goes on to say in verse 24, but Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's been said that there is a walkway in the city of Jerusalem where a certain archway is so low that for a camel to pass through there, uh, he has to be unburdened. All the things taken off of his back, and he has to get down on his knees and kind of like be pulled and dragged through, kind of ducked down. I, I don't know if that exists or not. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, it, it, actually, it, though, it does seem unlikely to me that that's what Jesus is getting at. Because it's actually possible for a camel to pass through that archway. It, it happened, right, in that, you know, antidote. But what Jesus is trying to say is, it's impossible. It's, diff- it's not just like difficult. It's not just like, well, you're going to have a tough time doing that, but it can be done. No, Jesus is saying, it is impossible. It cannot be done. At any rate, though, this, that adage or that picture of the, the camel laden with its burdens walking down this narrow passage, it does kind of get to the point of what Jesus is prescribing for this rich man. If this rich man, if any rich man, is to enter the kingdom of God. He, he, kneeling won't just be enough. 
The rich man's already doing that. He's kneeling at the feet of Jesus, but something else is going to have to happen. He will have to be unburdened. When's the last time you saw a camel unburden himself? Reach back there and untie the parcels that are attached to his back. Now, we have seen and we've laughed at the camel uh, throwing its rider. And as long as they're not hurt, we get tickled by that and we, we laugh. Ha, ha, ha. But camels don't unburden themselves. It's impossible. Still yet, a, a camel, if he were to go through that archway, whether it's true or not, he would have to be relieved of his cargo. He would have to be relieved of his wealth. He'd have to leave those things behind. That's exactly what is needed for this rich man. And it's exactly what this rich man is unable to do. Look at verse 26. It says again, they're not just amazed. This time they are exceedingly astonished. And they say to him, Jesus, who then can be saved? Who can enter the kingdom? Who can inherit eternal life? Who? If this man can't, he's kept the law from his youth. He's got plenty of influence and clout. Why can't he? If he can't, who can? Jesus looks at them and says, With man, it is impossible. But with God, but not with God, rather. For all things are possible with God. Here they are again. They're shocked. I want you to notice something. You kind of zoom out of those couple verses there. Notice the shift in the wording. There is a progression. It begins with a very specific statement about a specific grouping of people. Rich people, difficult for them to enter the kingdom. But then there's this progression, and as the, as the statement becomes more specific uh, or, or less specific, the difficulty actually increases. And, and let, me, let me see what I'm saying. Verse 23, it's difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom, it says. Verse 24 says it's difficult for anyone to enter the kingdom. And then in verse 25, it says it's impossible for anyone, even the rich, to enter the kingdom. Do you see that progression? It's not just rich people that are going to find a difficulty entering into heaven. It's impossible for all people, especially rich people. But then 27 comes and says this. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible, even entering the kingdom. Yes, yes, it's difficult for a rich man to be saved, but it is also difficult for a poor person to be saved. This is actually not about being rich or being poor. It's about the work that God does in drawing people, in giving the kingdom to people. You see, you cannot save yourself. You cannot receive the kingdom of your own volition. It has to be given to you. And only then can you receive it. And this is a work that God alone does. It's he who saves. It's not faith that saves. It's not works that saves. It's not endeavors that save. It is accessed through faith, but only through the grace of God. And this is why we say you can bring nothing into the kingdom. Your wealth has to be left behind. Your influence, your relationships, your sin. 
It has to be left behind. And to do that, it's impossible. Only God can do that in your life. There's a couple implications from this text this morning that I want to give to you. We looked at the the case study of this rich man coming to Jesus. We worked through some of that commentary. And as we work through the commentary, there's really going to be three things I'm going to call you to do this morning. You say, well, what am I supposed to do about all of this? Here's the first thing I would ask you to do. Pray that God would do the impossible. Pray that God would do the impossible. This rich man, he left saddened. He left discouraged. Why? Because he literally could not let go of his earthly wealth. He was trapped. Now, we see clearly it's impossible for him to let go. But what if he would have called out to Jesus? What if he had called out to the good teacher to save him from the possessions that possessed him? What if he would call out and asked? You see, he knelt. His posture physically was there humbly kneeling before Jesus. And he had left his belongings conveniently elsewhere. Why didn't he call out to Jesus? Deliver me from my possession. I think of that young boy, Eustace. His greed had gripped him. His love for gold had transformed him in isolation, given him to torment. He tried to remove the scales. He tried to to change who he was. And yet, no matter how hard he tried to peel off that dragon skin, no matter how hard he tried to remove that enchanted bracelet, he was unable to be free of that vile shackle. Impossible. Only when he asks, only when he prays to that mighty lion, pray you remove these scales and pray you remove this shackle. Only then is he freed. I wish that each of us this morning would run to Jesus as this rich man. That we would fall at his feet in humble submission. But that we wouldn't just stop there, but that we truly would call out to him to save us. To save us from the possessions that possess our hearts. Because if we do not, if we're not freed from that, we'll never enter the kingdom of God. And perhaps you think this morning, I have no riches. Yes, I'm part of the richest country in the world and my needs are met, but I am not rich. I would argue that we're all rich in something. We all make our own determinations of whatever fits us best as what what we would value, what we would collect. Maybe it's not wealth. Maybe it's not money. Maybe you're not sitting at home counting coin or counting Bitcoin. And yet each of us are rich. Each of us are tempted to be possessed or inclined to be possessed by something in this life. What is that thing that you're not willing to let go of. Maybe it's something that you're not even able to let go of. And like this rich man, when you kneel at the foot of Jesus, the feet of Jesus, you conveniently leave this thing behind. Maybe you're holding on to wealth. 
Maybe you're holding on to affluence. Maybe you're holding on to power. Maybe you're holding on to guilt. Maybe you're holding on to shame or personal pains and sins that other people have committed against you. Maybe you're hanging on to bitterness. Maybe you're hanging on to guilt and you won't let it go. You're unable to. And even as you look down at your white knuckles, you wish that you could be freed of it, but you're unable to. Would you pray this morning that God would loosen your grip? Would you call out to Him? It's impossible for you. It's impossible for me. And yet it is not impossible with God. He desires to free you from that. Would you truly submit to Him this morning and call out to Him? Would you call out not just on behalf of your own vile heart, but would you call out on behalf of your neighbor that God would also free their hearts? Would you call out? Would you pray on behalf of your coworker? Would you pray on behalf of your children and the children that sit in the chairs next to you here even in this room? It's impossible to change your heart. It's impossible to, to, to free the grip on worldly possessions, but not with God. But not with God. And so because we know that salvation is only possible when God works, we pray. In dependence, in fervorance, we pray. And knowing that it only takes place by God working, that also leads us to number two, or at least it should, and that is to praise. To praise God for doing the impossible. To praise God for doing the impossible. Each and every one of us, we need to pray that God would deliver us that God would do what, is only, what it is that only He could do. And furthermore, when He's done that, we must praise Him. We must praise Him. If you enter the kingdom of God, if you enter and if you receive it, listen, you are not the hero that made it possible. You're not the one that should be celebrating your own work. And yet so often that's what we do. Lest you think yourself the hero, be reminded that Left to yourself, left to your own devices, you'd never enter the kingdom. It would be impossible. And yet, if you have, God has done a work. And he must be praised for it. If you're to be released from your chains of wealth, your chains of addiction, your chains of lust or self-pity, it will only be done through the mighty work of God. And so Christian, I want to ask you this. When is the last time that you earnestly considered your sanctification and the work that God is presently bringing about in your life and you praised him for it? Some of you say, well, I'm struggling to stay uh, on top of my reading. Why don't you do this this week? I'm all about the reading plan, but why don't you take this Monday morning, let's say that you do your, your personal devotion time on, 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 in, in the mornings. I would encourage you, take Monday morning, take this afternoon, and just think about where you would be if it wasn't for the grace of God in your life. Just meditate on that. Chew on that. And let it well up with joy and gratitude. Why? Because God is doing something in your life. I recently heard a remark of a man who had renegotiated his work contract in order to have more Sundays available to worship on the Lord's Day with the Lord's people. 
And in doing so, in that renegotiation, he took a significant pay cut. And when I heard that, I pressed him on the matter, and I asked him about it, and he said this. I don't know that I'll ever forget it. He said, Jesus is worth it. Of course, Jesus is worth it. And when I hear statements like that, I don't praise man. You know what I praise? God. Because how in the world could anybody say that? Yeah, I took a pay cut so that I could have more time in the presence of God's people on the Lord's day. You say, well, I could never say something like that. Well, keep praying. Point one, what should you do? You should pray that God would release you from the things that possess you. And when you see him do such a thing, praise him for it. That's what I do. As a pastor, I love to hear not manufactured evidences of grace, but true evidences of grace, of God working in the life of his people. It says to me that God is alive and well and that he is in power, freeing people from sin and selfishness. So often, instead of praising God for for doing uh, what is impossible for us, we look at others still in the grip of sin, and we do so with disdain. Why can't they just do what I've done? Why can't they just make the decisions that I've made? Why can't they just see how foolish it is to do that thing over and over and over and over again? Maybe even as we drive up and down the streets of Hagerstown, we see people in the grips of addiction, in the grips of lust. Maybe in our hearts, we say, why can't they just do what I've done? Why can't they just be more like me? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten this point that it's impossible for you to be freed but for the grace of God? And so what should we do? Point one, again. Action step one, we pray to God and we ask him to do in their life what he has been doing in ours. And when we see him do such a thing, we praise him for it. Look at your own sinfulness this morning and praise him for bridging the great expanse. Look at the great holiness of God and the terrible sinfulness of your own heart and the wonderful cross that bridges the gap and praise God for it. And so pray. Pray that God would do the impossible. Praise. Praise God for doing the impossible. And three, persevere until the age to come. Persevere until the age to come. What's that verse say? Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. I want to be clear here. In case you're wondering, we need to remember that these men had left their nets. They did, right? Jesus calls them, and they just like, man, it's drastic. They just walk away from their professions. And yet Peter and Andrew still had a house, and they still had a boat. And so we got to be careful here. Is, is Jesus calling them to abandon everything here in this temporal realm for the sake of the eternal? In some sense, yes. But in another, no. They had need of their house. Peter's house was a, the center, point, uh, center um, uh, for ministry. So much of what Jesus was doing in his ministry. 
And yet still Peter points out that the disciples have done that. Jesus, we will leave everything. You are loosening our grips on all the things here in this life. Toward that we would hold nothing back from you. Peter draws attention to that, to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, we're doing that. And really it, it does seem as though Peter has in some sense abandoned all his earthly riches for Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to that? How does he respond? Verse 29, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. Jesus is being very clear here. There are rewards for those who give up all to follow him, both here in this life, they'll receive those rewards, and in the next. And sometimes we read this and we're like, hey, if we give up everything here in this life, we'll gain everything in the next. And that's sort of what Jesus is saying, but he's very clear. They'll also receive here in this life. They'll also receive here now. And I can't, can't help but think that this is a prophecy of all that a believer will inherit there in the church. Is that not a fulfillment of this prophecy here in some sense? The New Testament church, selling all that they have, coming together, having everything in common. It's a fulfillment of that. Remember this initial audience of Mark's letters, who was it? It's the Christians gathering there in Rome under intense persecution. And how would they have interpreted Jesus' teaching? How would they have heard this? There, there's that, that first audience. How would they have used this? How would the Spirit of God use this encouragement in their life as they went through that present discrimination? Though they would have to give up everything, they, they would gain a family in the church, a family more present and more caring than their own blood. Jesus' promise isn't, hey guys, hang on. I know you're going through some persecution. I know you've given up a lot of things. Hang on because there's coming a day in the next life. I'll pay you back. That's not what he's saying. He says in this life, you will receive those things back a hundredfold. Well, how is that to happen? Again, we see that in the life of a church. I, I think of another practical example though. Think of John G. Patton. He was a 19th century Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides located in the South Pacific Ocean. He literally left everything to follow Jesus. He left everything to preach the gospel to the farthest reaches, the darkest reaches of this world. God raised up for him a new spiritual family with greater number there on those pagan islands than he could have ever had in the West. Though the road was rough and painful and full of persecution and loss, he ended up with chieftains for brothers and islands for homes. Far surpassing what he left behind. This is not to say some, that, that if you give up one house, God will give you a hundred. This isn't some sort of prosperity gospel. Sow this and get that. 
But the facts are this. If you give up for Jesus and for the gospel in this life, you will get it back in ways that are more meaningful and more powerful. I hear the testimonies all the time of brothers and sisters from around the world and from around the U.S. relocating into whatever city they find themselves in. They search out a community, a, a Christian community, a church, a local assembly. And so often there as they begin to be present there, they sense a family greater than the one that they had before and greater than the the blood relatives that they've enjoyed previously. At any rate, Jesus is saying it's a sure thing. You will receive 100 times what you have forsaken. So we're to persevere. We're to persevere. Why? Because Jesus is promising that we will receive He's saying what lies before is greater than what lies behind. And it's as sure for us as is the word of God. And so, church, what are we to do? Well, we are to pray that God would do the impossible. We're to praise God when he does the impossible. And we are to persevere in faith, in hope, knowing that everything that we give up will be repaid and more. Those who would enter the kingdom of God bring nothing and gain everything. What a beautiful truth and invitation for us this morning. I can't think of a really of a better way, aside from what Jesus has already shared, to picture this than baptism. And so I want to invite Brandon and Aaron Alenzi up to the stage here. I can't think of any better way to illustrate this. This morning, I want to remind you that baptism is a symbol of, a, of several things. Go ahead and jump in. Baptism is a symbol of several things. One thing that baptism symbolizes for us this morning is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It pictures that. Here in the water, as, as the disciple of Jesus Christ would go in under the water, buried in death, and then to be raised back up. And so it pictures Jesus Christ. But furthermore, it pictures the disciples' unity with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so this morning we have a picture of Brandon and Aaron's union with Christ and of their enjoyment of the resurrection. As they go into the water, it pictures them being washed away. Their sin, their old life, their wealth, the things that they relied on and needed in the past, washed and left behind. And then being raised back up out of the water pictures them being raised to walk in newness of life. Being born as a baby, having brought nothing into this world but receiving everything all the spiritual blessings that Christ affords us this morning. And so I want to encourage you to be present and and enjoy this picture with us this morning. So I want to ask you uh, two questions, Brandon. First is this. Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Furthermore, are you walking in obedience to the Lord's commands this morning? I am. Well. Brandon, upon your profession of faith, We baptize you, our brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. 
Machen wir halt. Aaron, I'll ask you the same questions this morning. Have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Yes. And this morning, are you walking in obedience to the Lord's commands? Yes. Aaron, upon your profession of faith, we baptize you, our sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, <laughs> raised to walk in newness of life. <laughs> What a picture that we had this morning. Having brought nothing into this world, we can be certain that we will bring nothing out. Jesus, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, he says this. He says, you must be born again. What a beautiful picture this morning of being born again, being raised to walk in newness of life. Having brought nothing into this spiritual life, into the kingdom of God, and yet at the same time receiving everything, all the benefits that Christ offers. Let's pray and thank God for this picture this morning. Father, we thank you for this vivid illustration that we didn't come up with, but that you've gifted to your people. So we thank this morning of what this water represents. Christ's death, Christ's burial, and furthermore, his resurrection. And the hope that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too we can. And all those who are united with Christ are buried with Him and are also raised. And Father, as they're raised, their sins are washed away and left behind. They're freed from their guilt, freed from their addictions, freed from those possessions which possess them. And they're raised to walk in a life so farly, so drastically different and so upside down. They enter into the kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your saving power. We ask that you be glorified as we lift you up. We pray that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.